Okay, we should probably get started uh, back now. Am I audible? Berkeley, Microsoft, UCSD, am I audible? Yay! So, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to say, you know, hi, because I'm that faceless, uh, you know, teaching assistant minion that, you know, I've been bothering you on the wiki and through email. You know, thank you for not making my life too difficult. Uh, so, likewise. <laughs> Dang, I'm not being evil enough. Uh, you're gonna pay now. So, in the, the Ed's talk, you know, it was brought the good point that we're, that this course is very, you know, you know uh, focused and centered. That's the nice way of phrasing it. You know, it's very America-centered. It's very. Um, say white male centered and this was something that Ed expressed as a concern right from the beginning of uh, this term. In fact I believe that uh, one of the reasons why Ed pushed for me to be the TA for this course was he knew that he could probably get me to do a talk like this. <coughs> so I'm going to be talking about, you know, we can't focus on all diversity, uh, all the various spectra of it today, but you know, I'm going to focus on women in computing and I just really want to start with <coughs> This absolutely amazing photo. This is a. This is very similar to the one that's in the uh, Ceruzzi book. It's from the same photo shoot, just a different angle, and it's uh, just absolutely amazing. You know, you see, it's like okay. Well, first of all, that's Grace Hopper with three other programmers working on the Univac one. Now, unfortunately, the names of these three other individuals seems to have been lost to the ages. But look at this. You know, we have a woman. We have, you know, white man, we have a black man, we have, and given that, you know, race is such an easily scientifically observable thing, I think maybe Hispanic or Indian, I'm not sure. But we're seeing an amazing uh, array of, you know, yeah. And yeah, no, that's the other thing too, you know, was this stage? Well, this was taken in 1957. The civil rights movement was still very much in its infancy. You know, if I was making a uh, brochure to so, to encourage people to come to the computer science department, I would go for a picture like this. This is actually one of the underhanded things that uh, lots of uh, admissions offices do nowadays. It's, you know, even though there might only be, you know, 1% of a minority on campus, you will see them in usually half the photos. So this picture, you know, is really amazing, you know, like I said, amazing. But here's what the state of computer science is today. So this is a graph of the uh, percentage of, uh, deg of bachelor degrees in computer science and information science that, ha that are, have been awarded to women. And if, you know, so this looks back about 25 years and you see, well, we're hovering around about 30%. And, you know, Given that you know half of the population are women, that actually when you look at undergrad admissions, it's now almost, you know, I think the last test I saw was about 60% uh, of undergraduate students are women. Now, we're definitely seeing a bit of uh, disparity here. One thing that I wasn't able to uh, produce a graph of this in time, but if you, so you see that there was this uh, drop off in you know around 1985 or so, and this was due. This actually happened in a lot of the engineering sciences. But what's really bad is is that you know computer science has sort of been hovering around 30 percent. The other 
uh, engineering sciences, even mechanical engineering and electrical engineering, have recovered and have gone above that. So, you know, electrical engineering, you know, pretty similar to computer science, they had a drop off, but now they've actually gone a bit higher. They're not at 50%, of course. Uh, it is still EE. <laughs> Mm -hmm. The thing is, in, in Germany, it's around 15%. So, women quote that computer science. Yeah, so it's, this has actually been starting to be looked at at different uh, countries. Uh, so, uh, depending on how you look at it, some countries don't show a gender disparity. Uh, Italy is usually claimed as uh, not having a gender disparity, but there are other countries that are exhibiting this. And, you know, so, it can be as low as 15%, it can be you know, 30% is actually kind of viewed as a pretty decent number to at least maintain, but it's still not the best. And by the way, this is only undergrad. If you start looking at graduate uh, school, uh, we're about uh, down there if we're lucky, more likely probably here. So, now we had this amazing photo diversity, although if we base our numbers off of this, you know, we're doing better than 25% at least right now. Hey, we're in engineering. We can do crappy statistics like that. But how did we get this way? And you know, how much have women been involved in uh, the computing field in the you know past say 50 years? So that's what this talk is about. I'm going to highlight just some of the many accomplishments that uh, were made by women, starting from you know the 1940s and on. And also, you know, just tell you some of their stories. This has been a, this is one of those unique advantages of computer science. Being such a young field, we can still get our founders to provide their oral history. So, you know, we're sadly starting to lose a lot of, you know, the, you know, our founders, but, you know, we still have them around, so we've been able to gather these stories. Now, any talk about, uh, women in computing, you have to at least talk about Ada Lovelace a little. And Steve talked about her quite a bit on the first day. I just want to remind you briefly, you know, her work was, you know, actually she only spent a few years really working on computing, but her major contribution was is that uh, Babbage uh, uh, an Analytical Engine was written up in an uh, article by Menabrae that was, in, he wrote it in Italian, and uh, Ada, she ended up uh, translating it. However, though, when she actually translated it, uh, she added her own notes and actually uh, increased the length of the paper by 200%. So, uh, you can almost say that she wrote a paper and just uh, did a lot of copying and pasting of Menabre's work uh, into it. And some of her predictions, just from this paper, were amazing. Predicted that computers would be useful for music and graphics. What Babbage was mostly talking about at the time was calculations. She also wrote the first algorithm on how to compute Bernoulli numbers. Actually, there's some debate as to if she wrote it completely. Babbage did offer to write it to her, uh, to write it for her, and he sent her her a draft. She replied back, pointing out that there was a serious flaw in his algorithm and provided the uh, correction. And some of the other things that are just really amazing is that. I'm going to use the term amazing a lot tonight. I'm going to apologize for that. Is that she also recognized that uh, looping and subroutines are going to be important concepts for use of uh, computing here. There are also just some um, interesting co other things uh, she uh, uh, identified. She actually 
pretty much coin. Uh, she never used the phrase garbage in, garbage out, but she basically stated in uh, her the notes uh, that she had are labeled A through G, and the last one, which is uh, the longest of all of them, she recognizes that you know this analytical engine, it's only going to be as smart as the data we give it. It won't think for itself, but we can make it do amazing things if we give it the right data. But the real way to really understand, you know, a, uh, you know, the inside of uh, Ada was what Charles Babbage said about her. I'm just going to read this, and you can read it along here. If you, this was in reply to receiving her notes. If you are as fastidious about the acts of your friendship as you are about those of your pen, I much fear I shall equally lose your friendship and your notes. I am very reluctant to return your admirable and philosophic note A. Pray do not alter it. All this was impossible for you to know by intuition, and the more I read your notes, the more surprised I am at them, and regret not having earlier explored so rich a vein of the noblest metal. Now, analytical engine was Charles Babbage's baby. And just from working with this one article, Lovelace just she pulled out all of this that even that impressed and inspired Babbage. She just had this amazing influence. It's no surprise nowadays that the highest award in computer science is actually titled the Augusta Ada or Ada Augusta Love, Lovelace Award. And you know, one of the reasons why she was able to do this is is that. At the time in the Victorian age, there were actually some interesting opportunities for women interested in science. Uh, so some journals actively supported and accepted uh, science papers from uh, women authors, and there were even periodicals. So just as much as uh, you know, Vannevar Bush was uh, publishing his work in the Atlantic Monthly in the 1940s. They had you know newspapers like the Edinburgh Review and the Ladies' Diary. The fight opportunities for uh, you know publishing amateur scholarly wor uh, works. In fact, actually, the ladies' diary would often include a games page that, while not holding crosswords or jumbles, would ha would have mathematical puzzles in it. So, and sometimes these would be introductions to uh, you know higher orders or you know you know deeper problems in Euclidean geometry, or sometimes even introduction to non-Euclidean geometry, as it was back then. So there was a lot of opportunity for mathematical work in, but as we kind of worked our way up to the 1940s, it was pretty much only you know computing really. It was more hardware focused at the time. So we got to the 40s and we started having what were called human computers, and we've talked about these before some too. Is that you know if you have those uh, nice little, <coughs> uh, you know. Hand crank mechanical gear calculators. You know they can speed up calculations. Are a little better, are definitely better than you know doing it all with paper and pencil. And so typically women were hired to operate these. In the case of uh, World War II, they were hired to calculate trajectories and work off of provide tables so that uh, commanders out in the field could just look up at a table and figure out, okay, what do we have to set uh, the artillery to to be able to destroy our enemy. And most of the time, they were just using mechanical calculators, although there were some specialized equipment that the more successful human computers would use. Uh, the example was the differential analyzer, which was basically a calculator specialized for solving differential equations of a particular form. 
And one of the reasons why women were ex uh, especially attracted to it was because uh, it was an alternative to teaching. If you had the love of mathematics, you really had two choices. Well, three. One, you get your degree, don't do anything with it. Two, you become a teacher, which, you know, despite the old saying, those who can't do teach, uh, not everyone likes teaching or wants to do it. And the other option was to be one of these human computers. Uh, also, you know, there were some nice uh, advantages for the people doing the hiring. So one thing was is that hmm, there are a lot of available women. This was, you know, the standard Rosie the Riveter uh, uh, solution taking place in World War II. Well, all the men are overseas. We need uh, employees. I guess we'll finally hire those women. Oh, and even better, we can hire them cheaper. You know, I'm just waiting for someone in industry to realize that if you actually start looking at the, you know, the amount of money that are spent on, you know, CEOs and all that, uh, it's like, wow, we could actually increase profits a lot by replacing all the male CEOs by women. We just we'll still pay them uh, 70 cents on the dollar. It's a lot of company savings. Now, there were two places where a lot of uh, human computers uh, uh, did some work. One was at the Moore School of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. The other was actually at, at Los Alamos. And at Los Alamos, uh, as there were some interesting uh, activities that took place. So Richard Feynman was in charge of directing their efforts, you know, doing you know, all of his strange things as he was there. And because of the time frame they had, they actually ended up getting some machines from IBM. Now, interestingly enough, it's that all of the IBM machines were actually run by young men. These were part of the uh, Special Engineer Detachment, which was a part of the military draft, which recognized that some, you know, it's like, well, you're too smart. We're actually going to keep you here, and you're going to do projects uh, for us. At one point, Feynman actually had a sort of a John Henry versus the steam-powered drilling machine competition against each other. So he had... Uh, both the, the group of women with the mechanical calculators and the men with the IBM machines competing against each other. And actually at the time, they actually kept neck and neck. What they actually realized though is actually, you know, for the first day they were about equal, then subsequent days, you know, the women could not keep up. That was the real thing about, uh, you know, the IBM machines. They did not tire like, you know, the women cranking the gears, writing down the notes, all that. But more, let's talk more about the Moore School of Engineering. In 1945, the ENIAC project uh, needed programmers, and so they hired six of the best of the computers uh, to be the programmers. And the, this, these are some of uh, the more recent pictures of them. Uh, and so, you know, these were the original programmers, the first programmers, all women. And even later when uh, ENIAC got moved around, and more programmers were hired. Men started being hired, but still for a long time, many of uh, them were women. So what do they do on ENIAC? Well, first of all, they had to learn the system, you know, to be able to program it. Now, fortunately, ENIAC wasn't quite done being built, so they didn't actually get to work with it. They actually had to work through the blueprints. And one of the real challenges was uh, that you know, they could also talk to the designers, but some of the designers only really knew the parts that they built. They didn't know the whole system. So, you know, a person who had built the uh, arithmetic unit would really know how that works, but you'd have no idea on how the bus or uh, 
some of the tabulators work. So they had to piece this all together. And typically they broke into pairs. And the breakdown was is that uh, Meltzer and uh, Teitelbaum, they both uh, worked a lot on just providing, you know, pretty much software accuracy and correctness. They calculated, uh, they would take the sample programs that they were thinking about, they'd run them manually as ENIAC would and see if the results would match up with what they wanted. Uh, Spencer, actually I believe that's supposed to be Spencer. Nope, Spence, never mind, sorry. Spence and Antonelli, they pretty much did the actual programming. They looked and, and decided, hmm, how are we actually going to get you know everything to work efficiently? And one of the main reasons why they, these two were on that is that they worked on the differential analyzers, which were also required that sort of level of expertise. And finally, Gene Bartek and uh, Betty Holbert, and they were the ones who pretty much uh, dealt with uh, wrangling the evil beast and getting actually to do its things. Now, what was going on at this time, though, that's uh, really amazing is, is that eventually ENIAC would be transformed into a uh, into a uh, stored uh, <coughs> into a stored program computer. At this time, though, it was all you had to pretty much set switches and do all that in hardware. So they actually did all this programming at the machine level. They're the only people who ever programmed ENIAC at the machine level. This is just an amazing challenge that I can't even imagine dealing with. I hate just when I arrive to go down to a language as low as C. <laughs> so what happened after ENIAC? Well, some of them uh, just went off, they got married, and did non-computing related careers. Others stayed along. Uh, Ruth Teitelbaum stayed on the project for the longest and ended up training that second generation. Uh, Gene Bartek uh, was one of the critical people actually involved in converting ENIAC into the stored uh, program computer. She almost wasn't hired though. The person in charge of it, uh, of that project, Irvin Travis, was incredibly worried that she would, uh, you know, leave. And, or, you know, just wouldn't be around long enough. And Bartek kept saying like, well, I'm going to hire college graduates, I'm going to train them, you know, all that knowledge will be passed on. That wasn't what uh, uh, Travis was worried about. Uh, he was worried that uh, Jean uh, would get pregnant and go off and just, you know, make more babies, you know, because, you know, she was a woman. For, finally, Jean Bartek was able to swear that, uh, I don't know exactly on how she proved that she would not uh, become pregnant, but she was able to convince uh, Travis about this. Uh, Kathleen Antonelli actually uh, ended up marrying one of the chief, uh, pretty much inventors of ENIAC, uh, John Mockley, 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 and kept working on uh, later computers like BINAC and UNIVAC. Uh, Betty Holbert, and uh, you know, one of her claims fame is that she decided that UNIVAC one should be colored gray instead of black. But actually, her really big. Uh, uh, effort was in building the first mnemonic instruction set, uh, C10 for BINAC, and this ended up influencing a lot of later instruction sets that were put into hardware. Now, despite all this amazing stuff, see I said amazing again, these people were forgotten for 50 years. Uh, you know, people just didn't really, you know, care about them. Uh, 
one thing is is that you know the big thing about ENIAC was was the hardware. People put that together. Software uh, that's just getting it to do something. First, though, you know, which is more important, the violin or the music that's played on it? And you can argue, well, if you have your Stradivarius, and then you have your amazing works by, you know, Mozart. Other thing is the official army history of this actually misspelled most of their names. Gene Bartik is actually referred to a lot of times as Betty, which uh, she, uh, from just a little snippet I've uh, read about, she's like, I don't know where that came from, but I kind of like the sound of Betty Bartik. <laughs> and apparently, you're arguing that this is a uh, this is a hardware bias rather than a gender bias. In some somewhat in there, but there was also a gender bi bias going on. In that, uh, three of these uh, programmers ended up marrying people who were uh, engineers on the project, and so at the time they became instead of being individuals, they became you know, wives of. And so that sort of just led them to, uh, into obscurity. But that's a good point, that there was also this hardware versus software bias going on. But also ref but was just amplified by the gender bias. Now, the real um, uh, bit of spite was is that when there was the 50th anniversary of ENIAC, none of these people were invited. Absolutely none of them. But then a historian uh, uh, found out about this and raised quite a stink about it. And so this is, you know, this took place in 1945. It actually ended up, uh, <coughs> you know, raising the public's awareness of all this. And back in uh, 1997, all six of the programmers were inducted into the Women in Technology Interna International Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, though, this was w too late for one of them. Ruth Teitelbaum, unfortunately, passed away in 1986, so she never really saw these efforts. By the way, um, this, uh, this was, you know, I was talking about, you know, unfortunately, we're losing some of our uh, greats. Kay Antonelli, unfortunately, passed away in April of this year, and she had actually some really nice write-ups in major, in major newspapers, but that we, we lost, uh, you know, one of the founding greats. Oh, something else that's fun, when working on the ENIAC, when they were, this was after the war and they had to do their big demonstration to, to you know, all the generals, they had been working on getting uh, these uh, bullet trajectory calculations. Their code worked, except for one problem. The, it never stopped running. They would literally have to pretty much pull the plug on ENIAC to get it to stop. They spent a lot work figuring it out. That m During the night before the demonstration, uh, Betty Holberton, she realized what the problem was. It involved being one switch that needed to be flipped into the other direction. And so, you know, she was able to save the day like that. But, you know, it's kind of like one of those where you realize an off by one error when you're coding. And it's just a matter of, oh, I need to change that from a zero to a one. It existed even back there. Now, the real legend when it, you consider women in computing, though, is Grace Hopper. She's just an absolutely amazing person. Uh, primarily a mathematician at heart. She would probably, if she was alive today, still argues she's a mathematician first, a computer scientist second. She was also very active in uh, the Navy. Uh, after divorcing her husband, she was quite uh, progressive uh, for a time. She ended up joining the Naval Reserves in 1943 and worked with uh, Howard Aiken up at Harvard on the various uh, 
uh, Mark calculator systems. And first she was just a programmer working on the Mark I. Then she actually got involved with the development of the system. And it was during the Mark II that one of the more interesting legacies of computer science took place. And this is actually a photo of it. While working on the Mark II, uh, Hopper discovered that something wasn't working and there was an actual moth stuck in a relay. So she took out the moth and entered it into the logbook. And she's been she spent years telling the story on how, you know, this was the first real evidence of there being a computer bug. Now, this actually did not coin the term bug. Uh, bug has been an engineering term for centuries. Thomas Edison actually used it quite a quite a bit in his letters. But what was but the word that did get uh, uh, derived from this was debugging. So whenever uh, you know someone would come in and wondering, uh, are you actually doing any work? You know, Aiken would come in, and you know, the, and the uh, Mark II wasn't running. They could just say, well, we're currently debugging the system. So that's actually you know, getting the bugs out of the system was invented through this. Uh, Grace Hopper's career continued uh, for a long time after World War II. She worked on Univac, and she had s one of her really key uh, inventions at the time was the idea of a compiler. So this is the idea of instead of having to work at the machine level or near machine level of uh, assembly language, let's actually design that sort of English readable. And her actual real motivation for this was uh, twofold. One, she admits she was lazy. And she really hated doing machine language programming. The other is that she viewed that programming uh, should be more like mathematics. You should be able to bring this, you shouldn't have to be a hardware specialist to actually be a programmer. And so she wanted to bring this out. A lot of this work was actually influenced by efforts that uh, Betty Holberton did during her work uh, uh, when Betty worked on both ENIAC and uh, UNIVAC. And so uh, Grace Hopper invented uh, three types of compilers at the time for various uh, language purposes. Arithmetic, which kind of obvious. <laughs> Mathematic, which I'm not quite sure what the difference was between those, and Flowmatic. Flowmatic was more control flow, data processing, and in particular, Flowmatic was one of the fundamental uh, bases for uh, when COBOL was uh, developed. After the UNIVAC, she also got really involved in standardization, in particular in terms of programming languages. Instead of having all these different flavors out there, she wanted, to be, she wanted to, for there to be some sort of standard that they could work with. And uh, <coughs> And you know, also allow for testing. So she worked on that. Now, in terms of her naval career, uh, she ended up retiring three times. The Navy always regretted it when they let her retire. I think her longest retirement was about 18 months. And each time uh, that she uh, retired and was brought back, she got uh, up to rank or two. So, you know, it was good for her. If she ended up being a uh, uh, promoted to Commodore at the time. It was eventually renamed Rear Admiral by a special presidential appointment. In fact, actually, uh, this was pretty much as a thank you for all the amazing work she had done for the last 40 years. She also received the, def the Defense Distinguished uh, Service Medal, which is the highest uh, uh, 
uh, award that can be earned in a, a non-combat situation for a person in the military. So these sort of things are not given out uh, that much. When she finally officially retired from the Navy, she was hired as a senior consultant for uh, digital. And while working at DEC, her main job was to go around and tell people about what she had done and encourage them to think about computers. So she often considers herself a goodwill ambassador. And this is because she believed a lot in the mentoring process. She viewed that she learned a lot from the people she worked with, and she always made a strong point of training the new people that she worked with. And one of the things that she always emphasized what were called nanoseconds. And so Hopper was big, about, uh, was big on efficient computing. And one of the things that she uh, wanted to try to get the, get the idea to people in a more accessible way. So humans were horrible at thinking of, of uh, extremes. You know, we can picture about how long one foot is. If I tell you, uh, you know, a thousand miles, that's difficult to picture. You know, also when we get really small, we can kind of imagine what a centimeter looks like, but what does a nanometer look like? Or how long is a nanosecond? So she decided to make a, uh, a physical object for it. So she cut a piece of wire to about 12 inches in length. This is the distance that electrons travel in, in one nanosecond. And she would hand these out. So now you had this physical thing that you were supposed to save. Every time you made your program run a little more efficiently, you were saving these one foot uh, segments. To really drive point th drive the point home, she carried around this. This is a thousand feet of uh, twisted pair wire. That's equivalent to one microsecond. That's a pretty hefty piece of wire there. So, you know, she was able to drive home that point of, you know, instead of like saving something we can't really notice, you're saving this really massive bundle of wire. Of course, though, she couldn't uh, carry around a millisecond or a second because uh, that'd be pretty impressive. I really don't even want to think what 189 miles of wire would weigh or look like, but. Once we get to that size, you really get this idea of efficient coding ends up saving quite a bit. So, you know, uh, you know, this timeline I'm trying to follow isn't exactly accurate, but it's uh, it uh, gets us along there. So, you know, I just talked about the people who really started in the 1940s. Now I'll talk about the people who got started in the 50s. One of them was uh, Judith Clapp. And Judith, uh, one of her major works was on the MIT Worldwind project, which was uh, pretty much uh, one of the first real-time systems. But the real effort that uh, Judy Clapp ended up uh, putting in was the pretty much establishment of software engineering. She recognized that, you know, wow, as software gets larger and larger, we're going to have to manage it. And so she actually started developing tools for, you know, writing large systems, for tying different pieces together, for dealing with when you have to upgrade it. Of course, though, for all uh, programmers here, it's you don't really need software engineering, right? I mean, come on. You know, everyone documents their code. It's easy to follow. It's something that people naturally do. Everyone like documents their code fully. They use you know smart versioning. I'm not getting any reaction. What a shock. Mm -hmm. She also has made uh, quite a bit of uh, effort in just uh, reflecting on what it was like being a woman uh, programmer early on. 
So I'll read this. When computer programming was becoming a field, there was a belief that it was women's work because women were neat, organized, etc. Programming paid more than other jobs that women had during that period. We knew we were contributing something and we liked that. Now, one of the things I really like is, is that because women are neat or, and organized. So um, basically, Judy Clapp invented software engineering to deal with the fact that you know, these messy, disorganized men were coming into the field and just doing things the wrong way. Of course, uh, you know, the solution is, you know, instead of having to deal with those uh, you know, massive software engineering efforts at big companies like Microsoft, just fire all the male uh, programmers and just hire female ones. Think that would work? <laughs> Another important person at the time was Thelma Estrin. And Estrin's work has actually been a bit uh, different in that she's worked a little bit more in uh, the mi biomedical uh, community. She was involved with the WISAC, which was the first large-scale electronic computer built outside of Western Europe and uh, the United States. So this took place in Israel. But really, a lot of her work has been in biomedical engineering. She developed one of the first computer systems for analyzing and capturing neuron firing. So this was uh, systems that eventually got used into uh, electroencephalograms, in the really crazy work that some people in this department are doing, like Raj Rao and Chris Diorio, where they're actually trying to do uh, neural interfaces computers. So a lot of her work started that. She also was a big advocate for incorporating computers into, uh, uh, into medicine. And so she was one of the founders of medical informatics. She was also, and I mentioned this before, the highest recognition that you can uh, <coughs> or one of the highest recognitions you can receive in computer science is the Ada Lovelace Award. And she was the first recipient of that back in 1982, largely for... I believe, you know, honestly, I'm looking at this, I think it's only for women right now. I think this is the highest recognition you can get for women. Ed, is that correct? Yeah. So, activity was taking place in the 50s. Now, in the 60s is where we start getting some uh, even more amazing stories. So, Sister Mary Kenneth... Can I just say a word about, uh, about Thala? Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting that she has two daughters, mm -hmm. one of whom, uh, Debbie, is a superb computer scientist at UCLA, and the other of whom, Judy, uh, co-founded or founded Bridge Communications and then worked at Freecom. Mm. So, she's got this uh, incredible legacy of... Uh, daughter who was just incredible computer scientist too. Her husband was a UCLA computer scientist. So Mr. Uh, so not Mr. Sister <laughs> Mary Kenneth Keller um, was in some ways the first woman, woman to ever receive a PhD in computer science. Now this, there's a little bit of uh, complexity to this to be honest. But she was uh, definitely a rule breaker. When she did some of her graduate work at Dartmouth she became the first woman to ever be involved in the computing center there, and was actually one of the people who helped develop uh, BASIC. Now, where would a lot of us be if we had not had BASIC to play around with when we were uh, young? She ended up becoming faculty at Clark College in Iowa, and she not only founded the computer science program there, she founded one of the only master's programs for computer applications in education. And a lot of this was because of the insight and that she had into what computers would mean. And so I'll read this. We're having an information explosion. So she's writing this in the 60s. 
or early 70s. We have an, we're having an information explosion, among others, and it's certainly obvious that information is of no use unless it's available. So very similar to what Vannevar Bush was talking about in the 1940s. Then she goes on to say, for the first time, we can now mechanically simulate cognitive processes. We can make students, we, we can make studies in artificial intelligence. Beyond that, this mechanism, the computer, can be used to assist humans in learning. So you're going to have more mature students in greater numbers as time goes on. This type of teaching will probably be increasingly important. So she recognized that, you know, you're gonna have more and more students and computers could support that. I just say there is some controversy as to was she really the first uh, woman with a PhD in computer science? Typically, the first PhDs that were designated as being computer science came out of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Richard Wetzelblatt and Andy Van Dam are typically viewed as the first two computer science PhDs. Now, Keller earned her PhD in May 1965 from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Wetzelblatt didn't earn his until December of that year. And I was able to find a copy online of uh, Keller's original PhD, so I don't know what it actually says that she got it in. But the University of Wisconsin-Madison does recognize her as having had a computer science PhD. So maybe this is uh, an evidence of a big uh, male conspiracy here to uh, lie about the fact that you know the first you know the first PhD in computer science was earned by a woman, but. I don't know. All I can really say is that prior to 1965, it's generally viewed that when it came to women with a PhD in computer science, there were none. And after 1965, there was a none. <laughs> I'm known for bad puns. I came up with that last night, and I was going to have to say it. <laughs> now, we get into probably one of the most amazing stories to have unfolded in recent years, the story of Lynn Conway. So before 1999, Lynn Conway was recognized as being an incredibly influential person in computer science already. She did great work uh, doing VLSI at Park. She was part of DARPA and the Strategic uh, Computing Initiative, not Defense. I was thinking something else when I... So she obviously was the Conway of Meet Conway VLSI. Yeah. And in 1999, she revealed that she uh, is a... Or is a transsexual woman. She was born male and transitioned being female. But more importantly, that before she transitioned, she worked for IBM. And while she worked at IBM, she conceived probably one of the most important ideas that is pivotal to the, to the superscalar computers that we use nowadays. So, um, whenever she talks about her past, she uses the, she uses, uh, the name Robert. Where um, honestly, if you actually if you dig around, you can I learn what her original name was. It was not Robert, uh, but uh, there's no real reason to do that. She's still the same person. What do you name her? So while at IBM, she started working at uh, working on the ACS1, which was IBM's real big push to create a super fast supercomputer. And at the time, T.J. Watson had pretty much given them a directive saying. Uh, use as many transistors as you would like. He recognized that being uh, miserly with transistors probably would not get the results they wanted. And on this project were lots of great minds. Uh, some of the ones that are particularly important to mention are John Cock and uh, Herb uh, Shore. Eh? 
two people just had incredible influence. And at the start, Robert was basically uh, a programmer, developing a, a timing simulator so they could test certain architectural ideas. And as this, uh, he... It's an interesting thing about talking about uh, people who have undergone a gender transition, awkwardness in actually using pronouns. Um, they had lots of architectural discussions, and one question that John Cock kept bringing up is, how can the machine execute more than one instruction per machine cycle on average? Prior to this, there had actually been some work that said, you're never going to be able to do better than one. You know, that's all you'll ever be able to do in hardware. We'll be limited to one instruction per cycle forever. Well, Robert didn't know about that result and kind of viewed it as a design problem. And it led to one of the greatest places for the creation of new ideas, the shower. And the sh uh, his insight uh, was that you could use a special queue implemented in hardware to keep track of different instructions and order them out of order depending on if uh, they were independent based upon a simple set of rules. They end up being five rules, and some of these rules, as you can sort of see here, are... Uh, so one thing is, uh, so this is the order of instructions to be executed. By the way, this is from the original uh, dynamic instruction scheduling paper. Uh, we see that instruction one will place its result in R7, and instruction two will place, uh, uses that result. Therefore, we know that instruction one has to be executed before... Uh, uh, instruction 2 gets executed. However, instruction 3, it doesn't use anything that's going to be involved. So we can run, uh, if we wanted to, we could run uh, 1 and 3 simultaneously if we had two add operations. Let's say we only have one add operation. So we take a look at number 4 and we go, hmm, we're not using any of those registers. We're not using the uh, the arithmetic unit for doing division, so we can run one and two simultaneously. And you know, sure, we're you know probably the division is going to take a long time, but the sooner we start it, the sooner it finishes. And what was really uh, insightful about this is that Conway recognized that you could do this all through transistors. You just had to set up these matrices of transistors. It could be all be done in hardware in parallel, doing the, determining all this. Amazing speed up. Even though you were you were paying a one in terms of transistors, you could theoretically get three, four times, five times the speed up in terms of instructions executed. This was supposed to be theoretically impossible. And when uh, Conway presented this, everyone was shocked, and they were amazed, and they just kept pushing on. Conway in a single presentation elevated uh, uh, his standing into you know being one of the, you know a great mind in, in the group and you know there was actually a lot of legacy with this uh, because what ended up happening was is that in shortly after uh, announcing this it's well one the ACS project got cancelled because there, IBM threw all of its efforts into the 360 uh, Conway also started, uh, decided to transition into living as female. And IBM management got, got word of this, and it's actually kind of believed that T.J. Watson actually officially said, we're firing this person. And there's some interesting res uh, results from this. It's One, it's that 
they let Conway take all of her papers with her, everything. So she had this huge archive of all of her work. Moreover, um, you know, dynamic instruction scheduling had clearly become stuck in people's minds. They recognized it's important. And it eventually kind of leaked out slowly, but there was actually no real official proclamation that this is dynamic instruction scheduling and it's going to change our world. So it ended up becoming part of several later systems, but there was no actual patent associated with it. When uh, Conway was at IBM, before announcing uh, her transition, she did talk with uh, people, with IBM lawyers, and they decided not to patent it because it was, well, it's just sort of an idea of logic, you know. It's kind of like software. You know, we can't patent software. And so they viewed it that one as possible. However, though, in uh, the mid-70s, uh, there was an effort to combine the insights from ACS with the 360 technology and a sort of uh, uh, restricted and less uh, effective form of uh, dynamic construction scheduling was actually included in the ACS 360 and that was patented. They actually, in the patent application, they actually used uh, uh, the figures uh, from this article that Conway wrote in uh, 68, but they did not attribute them at all. Didn't mention whatsoever. So IBM actually did get a patent on this modified version. And then you had other people in the 80s actually proclaiming that they invented it. So, you know, there were actually lawsuits over I, did IBM patent, uh, did IBM's patent uh, apply, or was it this uh, I forgot to write down the name of him. Some some guy in the 80s who invented this idea. Although DIS had actually sort of leaked into superscalar systems that had existed already at that time. And what ultimately did happen, though, is is that in 1999, uh, uh, Dr. Mark Smotherman, Smother a computer scientist at Clemson, uh, was started doing uh, research into the history of ACS and superscalar computers and thought that, well, the ACS sounded like it could have been the first superscaler. This actually led to uh, pretty much uh, Lynn Conway's past coming out. And it's now, thanks to Smotherman's work and Conway's original archive, we can claim pretty uh, strongly that Conway invented the idea. Of course, the patent doesn't say anything. I don't think there's ever been any formal lawsuit against it. But where kind you know, that's, you know, an idea like dynamic construction scheduling would normally be, you know, oh, that's enough to just make a person worthy of being talked about in a class like this. Such an important idea that influenced everything. Well, Conway, she had, uh, after being fired, she really had no choice but to start all over. Because of the directive from on high at IBM, none of her colleagues could actually help her in finding a new job. And so she pretty much had to um, pretty much go out and start from scratch. Uh, you know, she kept trying to f uh, apply for jobs. I recognized her ability. And then uh, typically, though, she uh, would, uh, you know, talk with them, withhold her uh, medical condition until after, um, until after they gave a job offer. And a lot of companies ended up firing her or, or rescinding their offer immediately upon learning that she had been born male and then transitioned to being female. Eventually, she was able to get a job as a 
I'm going to use the word uh, here appropriately, lowly contract programmer. Someone of this insight is not who you would, ex you would expect to be pretty much being paid on a per program basis. She eventually uh, you know, worked her way to different companies, got to Memorex, and then was picked up by Park. And while at Park, she started uh, the large-scale integration systems area with uh, Doug Fairburn and Carver Mead. And one of the things that Carver, I mean, not Carver, uh, that Conway recognized is that when dealing with transistor layout, this was ideas that Carver Mead had already started formulating, that there was a need to, to design the design process. Carver Mead recognized that there was an importance in actually laying down trans transistors in a logical and practical way. And so, but this was something that was, had actually been kind of lost to the community for a while because of, uh, it was like, why should you know architecture people be cared about transistor layout? That's beneath us. But Mead saw that there was be an improvement in there. So together they produced this textbook, which is probably the seminal, uh, actually it is the seminal book on VLSI work. So for those who aren't familiar with the uh, terms, LSI stands for large scale integration. VLSI stands for very large scale <coughs> integration. I've also heard some people jokingly talk about VVLSI, which is very, very large scale integration. Basically it's talking about the more and more transistors you try to put onto a chip. And to kind of prove that you know their work was actually good for uh, Xerox Park, uh, they actually had to test their methods. So, first, so in 78, they tested it in a single course at MIT. Really impressive, but you know some of the arguments were, well, it's MIT, of course it's going to turn out to be good. The next response was, well, we'll try it again. And they ended up doing this at multiple universities. University of Washington was one of them, lots of key University And they also supported collaboration through the existing ARPANET at the time. So they set up you know, the ability to, uh, you know, you know, to communicate, do email, things like this at that time. And they did this in 1979. And it was a, it was a success all over. And so this pretty much was another shift in just the men mentality of on how are we going to build hardware. So Conway at this point had actually made her second real uh, impact on uh, hardware. First, she introduced that, hey, we can issue multiple instructions at once, and now we can incur a you know, faster build time by using these VLSI methods. So, double impact. Of she wasn't done yet. Uh, you know, needing kind of a change, she ended up joining DARPA and was the technical architect for the, for the Strategic Computing Initiative. So, this was basically a project uh, funded by DARPA to say, we need to build uh, faster and more intelligent computers. And so, you know, heavily involved in this. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about this is that because she disclosed her condition, the people at DARPA knew all about this, and they were perfectly willing to hire her. Although, uh, Conway does uh, wonder at times that that actually uh, supported her being hired in some ways because it made her even a little more exotic. <laughs> Other than just being a woman in computer science, she was a man who is now a woman in computer science. Uh, one of the real high points was when she was elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 1989. She was actually almost outed at this point. Some people who knew about her past felt that she did not deserve it and actually contacted the academy. 
the Academy actually decided, screw that, we're still going to give her the recognition. And in 1985, she joined the University of Michigan uh, as an Associate Dean of Engineering and became an emeritus status in 1999. Uh, in 1999 is also when she decided to disclose uh, uh, her past, reveal all this information, because it, it was coming out due to the existence of the internet, people communicating more, and she felt that it was the right time to do it. Since then, she's actually become a really strong uh, fighter in transgender and GLB advocacy. And if you actually explored any more of her website, you'll see that she's heavily involved in that. And one of her key views is that as a successful trans woman, she should, uh, you know, she should be out there showing people say, uh, we're not all uh, freaks. <laughs> so one of, the, you know, I just have to repeat on just how amazing this story is. It's this person who made incredible contributions to computer science after having to really restart her career. Now I'm not going to suggest that, uh, you know. We could maybe, actually, I will suggest maybe there's a way we could actually, you know, really up the innovation in computer science. By I, I won't say that we have to make uh, you know all computer scientists uh, change their gender, but uh, <laughs> requiring our you know great minds to have to start from scratch and build themselves up again, I think it would be an interesting challenge. So let's get to the 70s now. One of the, uh, you know, and we've been talking about uh, Department of Defense, DARPA, quite a bit. One of the other large players in this was uh, Nita Jones. Nita Jones is uh, currently a professor at the University of Virginia. Uh, when she graduated from Carnegie Mellon, so first of all, she was born in Texas and was allowed to really pursue almost anything she wanted. She bounced around for a little while. She actually has a master's in English. But she ultimately decided computer science is what really interested her. So at Carnegie Mellon, she was also big of, on providing collaboration. So this was sort of the Southern Texas, uh, you know, mentality and manners. And she actually started what was called uh, the Brownie Plate Group. So they would go to a cafeteria like once a week, and uh, various people, and they would get brownies, and they would just brainstorm. And ultimately, they ended up using all, all the time the heavy cardboard plates that they were given. They'd flip them over and write their notes on it. Apparently, several theses were conceived on these grease-stained, uh, chocolate-stained uh, pieces of cardboard. Uh, the real high point of uh, her career, though, was uh, in 1993 when she was appointed to be the Federal Director of Defense of, uh, of Research and Engineering. And this was the highest position that has ever been held by a woman in the Department of Defense so far. <coughs> so, you know, really amazing, you know, just step in, you know, just visibility of women, women in computing. Since then, she's been focusing a lot more on broadening the perspective of, uh, of science and technology. She actually started a science policy uh, course at UVA, and she actually mandates, uh, you know, or, or wants her students to recognize that a technology is only ever valuable if it actually benefits people. I can't disagree with that. Now, another great person is uh, Radia Perlman. Uh, she has done a lot of work. So, she uh, 
started at MIT, and as uh, an undergrad, she did some work in uh, undergrad and a bit of her uh, master's work. She worked in the Logo Labs. People don't know Logo. Logo was a programming language aimed at three-year-olds. The idea was to built to introduce programming at a young age. It follows pretty much totally little turtles that move around. They act as uh, little avatars uh, that enable you to do things. You can do some fun graphic stuff with them. So Radia's project was on uh, you know, making physical computing possible. She would have these like little blocks and things that you could connect together that would end up, uh, you know, pretty much on how you connected the blocks would create uh, a logo program. Now, anyone here who does human-computer interaction will recognize this is tangible computing, where we actually use objects to control a computer. <coughs> tangible computing kind of got its start in the late 80s, but she invented the concept of it back in the 70s. So, of course, uh, you know, she's not an HCI person. She's actually a networks person. She, uh, on getting her master's, she uh, left to work for BBN uh, Technologies, which was one of the many just little networking uh, technologies that were starting to appear in the late 70s. And, and, so. and while she actually was working for them, she attended quite a few inter-vendor meetings. And this is one of the more amazing events that took place in her life. So at one of the meetings, uh, the person who was in charge of it said, okay, for next time, I want you to consider this really difficult routing problem. We don't have a solution for it. Next meeting comes along. She presents her she presents a solution to it. No one pays attention to her. No one asks any questions. Right after her talk, the you know person in charge of the meeting stands up, you know, says, "Okay, you know, that's great, but remember I mentioned this really difficult routing problem we had last time. We still need to figure out how to solve it." She was completely and totally ignored by everyone there. Oh, except for one person, person from DEC. Person from DAC said, like, that's great, we're going to use it. By the way, would you like a job? So she ended up moving uh, to DAC. And basically, um, the things that she did at uh, DEC uh, on the DECnet, uh, on DECnet, basically why we have an internet today. She invented many of the networking protocols that make the internet possible. I'll talk about those a little bit more on the uh, next slide. She's also worked for uh, Novell. Currently at Sun Microsystems, doing a lot with uh, the various Java web services. And in 2005, she was uh, awarded the Woman of Innovation Award, which you know, I'll actually send out a link to her acceptance speech. It's one of the most amazing speeches I have ever heard. That's where a lot of these stories come from. But what makes uh, Radia really uh, important to know about it is that while many people claim to be the father of the internet, no one will disagree that she is the mother of the internet. One of the chief things she invented was the spanning tree network protocol. So a spanning tree is if you have a collection of nodes that are connected, a spanning tree is just a set of those connections. That means that you can, everyone is connected to everyone through some path. And this is pretty much, you know, you, know, you can have a bunch of cities, but you can't travel along them unless you have roads. Internet had plenty of nodes, but it needed roads to figure out how to connect people, connect everyone. She provides those roads. And this sign that the spanning tree network protocol takes place 
whenever you go to a web page, whenever you do anything on a network, basically. But we don't see it. It is so ingrained in there. She also did some great work in uh, network layer protocols uh, involving Byzantine robustness. Anyone who took the distributed systems course, uh, well, we didn't uh, last spring. We didn't read one of her papers, uh, partially because, uh, well, Rodia Perlman has actually felt embarrassed that network students said. She's actually gone on record saying she's a little embarrassed that people read her, this was her thesis work. She's a little embarrassed that University of Washington students have to read it. Because she actually realized that there are some interesting flaws with uh, the system. But basically what this system does is, uh, you're, it's uh, being able to get two nodes on a network to communicate with each other, even if everyone else is being malicious. So they're dropping packets, they're injecting false packets, and for her, you know, viewed as an impossible problem, she thought about it and realized, oh, there's actually an elegant, simple solution. <coughs> also has 80 patents for a variety of network system technology. So, getting into sort of uh, more recent times now, I have two other people I want to mention. One is Anita Borg. Anita Borg was, uh, who sadly passed away a few years ago of brain cancer, just really big advocate in terms of recognizing the need for diversity in computer science. Not just from diversity in terms of who does computer science, but also its applications and what technology can do for people. Started her work at Xerox PARC and kind of more of a systems person and did several things. Um, one, she was uh, put on the Presidential Commission on the Advancement of Women in Minorities in Science, Engineering, and Technology. Also, when she attended systems conferences, she realized that there were usually, you know, only, only three other women at the conference for, uh, you know, the hundreds of men who were there. So she formed an online group called Sisters, uh, which is spelled the really cute name, for these are women who do systems work. And it's uh, about 2,500 strong nowadays. So she starts setting up these communities, taking advantage of what technology could do. Of course, it helped that her work at PARC was on a communication system. She also founded the Institute of Women in Technology, which has three main goals. Bring non-technical women into the design process, encourage more women into the science to become scientists, and you know, work with industry, academia, and the government, you know, the three principal players in making these changes. Now, a good friend of Anita Borg is my final person I just want to mention, Maria Clave. Maria, I'll first of all mention, she is one of my role models. I've gotten opportunities to talk with her several times, and it's always great. She has, you know, done a wide variety of work from very theoretical work to HCI work, such as uh, working on systems for supporting people with aphasia, or computer games for encouraging uh, middle school students to think about computing. That was called the eGEMS project, which... Uh, <coughs> but she has also, just in recent years, has become an amazing uh, person in, in terms of uh, of just being present in uh, the infrastructures of universities and organizations. She was the ACM president, the Association for Computing Machinery uh, uh, president for uh, from 2002 to 2004. Not the first woman, I believe, but definitely more you know, involved there. 
when at the University of British Columbia, she chaired the department for seven years. She was a vice president of student and academic services, was the dean of science. Then she moved to Princeton University, where she became the dean of engineering and applied sciences, sciences for four years, and is now currently the first female president at Harvey Mudd College. She has made a big point about, you know, tr you know she <coughs> takes advantage of these uh, uh, the political power that she's position that these posi that these positions give her, and really trying to encourage people to think about the state of where computer science is in terms of its diversity and really encouraging it. Uh, they're available online. Are the uh, colloquias that uh, the department here at University of Washington uh, gives? She gave a great colloquia a few years ago on encouraging women in computer science. And it's one of those I highly recommend people watch. It, she's also just a great person to listen to because mm, she's casual. <laughs> you know, I just have to say, you know, I had to choose how many people I wanted to talk about. There were plenty of others to mention, from Susan Agers, UW faculty here who's done great work in uh, in architecture, to various other people. You know, I could you know. Give an idea. It's a uh, Liskov as uh, Arbor Liskov has done a lot of work in programming languages. I actually feel really embarrassed about this. I just realized this is supposed to be EI, which anyone who's screwed up my email definitely knows why I'm embarrassed on that. Irene Grief uh, has uh, worked for Lotus and other places, done a lot in collaborative work. Uh, hey, Judy Estrin, Thelma Estrin's daughter. We have uh, you know, all these different people. So there are plenty of women who have contributed significantly to computer science in the past, in present, and in the future. So, but we're still here. At the under one comment on this. Mm -hmm. I, I checked because I thought I remembered this, but it didn't. Um, it, no, sorry, undergrad. Mm -hmm. it, it's worse than that because the. Force uh, of women getting bachelor's degrees at research universities mm -hmm. only 15%. Ah, so okay. if you look at uh, the number of women doing. Uh, there, there are 200 departments that grant a PhD, and if you look at women in bachelor's programs at those universities, it's only 15%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's only 15% at research universities, which, right. uh, you know, when it comes down to it, most of. Uh, most of the students who feed into graduate programs are often coming from undergraduate programs at research universities. And the majority of the ones who feed into sort of the Microsofts and Google of the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but given that the overall enrollment in bachelor programs is going down rapidly, maybe that just means the women see the trend faster than the men. <laughs> well, the, the you're saying that uh, women would have to have been prescient uh, or no. You know, predictive of uh, the, the truth is that we got to that level by the late 1980s. Yeah. So basically, if we just looked at uh, research universities, we probably saw something. You know, I'll be nice and say we were at 15 percent. We were a little higher, but now we've been kind of stuck at this. So this would be at research universities. So it's always been sort of at this unfortunate low level. What is the percentage of uh, women in computer science faculties? Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Ed, if you can look that up real quick. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the uh, current really big problems is the notion of a shrinking pipeline. 
So not only do we have low numbers at the undergraduate level, if you start looking at female graduate students, you're seeing uh, small levels as well. The department here is actually amazingly good. I believe this year we are currently at 26%, which is high for most R1 universities. Mm -hmm. But our completion percentage is very bad. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing. It's uh, so the uh, 25 per 26% I just quoted are pretty much the current number of women in the department right now. If you actually look at what this graph is talking about, where it's people who actually complete the program, our uh, drop rate is still high. However, though, the fact that we actually bring in women is better than some universities. I believe I can't remember which one of the uh, you know R1 universities had zero women among its uh, new grad students. So 30 new students, zero women. And sometimes they're happy if they have two. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned earlier on this graph that other sort of technical disciplines, you know, like mm -hmm. electrical engineering, something like that, they haven't shown quite as bad of a drop-off. Um, is that and they've recovered. also unique to computer science, the drop-off for graduate students? Or is that do all those other... So I don't actually that? have as much data on uh, the graduate student level. It's I'll be honest, I kind of, you know, most of my work for this talk was actually talking about uh, the, the, you know, the women in history. But because of a lot of the interest that came up on the wiki and through the experts, I included some of these. So most of the work is actually focused a lot now on just uh, bachelor degrees. So while there are grad studies out there, I've never really had the opportunity to look at them. I suspect that we probably saw a similar drop. By the way, you know, I'm surprised no one's asked this. Why was there this weird sudden bulge? And what kind of took place here is uh, interesting. So around this time, there was sort of a bit of a, you know, the tech market went through some changes. And part of this ended up uh, increasing the demand for um, people to major in computer science. And departments uh, had to figure out some way of, you know, determining who should enter into the major. They couldn't service everyone. So what they ended up doing is, about this point is when they decided that prior programming experience would be viewed as a good test for determining if a person should, be, should major in computer science. Now, this was actually, this is an ongoing problem. So, so I'm gonna object to this a bit. Okay. okay. Only the following way, it seems to me that there are at least a half dozen possible explanations mm -hmm. for this downturn. For example, <coughs> video games became mm -hmm. uh, predominant, and that for years was a guy thing. Mm -hmm. So, so the point is, there's a bunch of explanations, and at some level, I don't think we don't, I, I don't think we know yeah. which the operative one is. Mm -hmm. It is the case for sure that high school programming, which was the devil's invention, was introduced there too. So this is this is definitely a yeah. factor. Yeah, but it's actually, that's related to the point I was going to make with the prior programming experience. If you typically do studies of young children's exposure to computers, uh -huh. usually you'll find, particularly in the 80s and 90s, a, you know, if there was a son in the household, the computer was bought for the son. If there was a daughter in the household, the computer was bought for the household. So there was always this sort of just subtle difference in that the computer was actually targeted specifically at the sons. And, but when it came to daughters, it, 
was not really encouraged or focused on. And another just relation to that is, is even there have been studies on where the computer has been placed in the in the home. So it's you know if there's a sun in the in the home, the computer will have a much higher tendency of being placed within the boy's room. And if there's son and sons and daughters, then that limits the access for the uh, for the girls in the family to get there. So here, here's the stats: doctoral program enrollment, PhD program enrollment is 15 percent women in mm -hmm. science, and faculty at doctoral granting mm -hmm. universities, so at those 200 universities yeah. that grant mm -hmm. the PhD, is 15 percent female. Although in the most recent year, the new hires were 22 percent female. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. um, question: Is there mm -hmm. also a figure for the percentage of PhDs granted that are granted to females? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What were those numbers again? Because I feel it always good at looking at the numbers. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So I think the fifteen percent was enrollment in also in enrollment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. PhD yeah, production. So. Mm -hmm. Gender PhD recipients, 15% female. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm rounding. It's 14.7. Uh, see, we're losing 0.3%. We're doomed. But it's one of those, it's high, you know, we're not necessarily comparing the same populations here. It's uh, questions oh, of, you know. So I, I lied. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, so PhD program enrollment is 20%. Oh. And, it, and degrees granted is 15 percent. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there Yeah, so this is particularly an issue of the higher dropout rate. Also, if you start looking at in industry as well, is that even though uh, actually I'll switch back to the slides. Okay. Ah. No. There are just certain little facts that are important to just mention. Even though we were seeing a lot of women in this talk in the past, they uh, things were not as rosy as it seems. You know, there were still a lot of things going on. I've already mentioned pay disparities, and more importantly, they were often in low-level positions. Judy Clapp has made this comment: uh, "It's you know, given a chance to work in a technical field was a great opportunity. However, upon closer." In uh, Inspection. Almost all the leaders and man, managers were men. You know, there was a big just importance in being able to be in these technical fields because the expectations were to be either uh, a nurse or a school teacher. Those were your careers, and you know, potentially a s secretary. But you know, eventually you would uh, quit. You know, and move on to you know doing the important things, managing the home, popping up babies, making pie. Question from San Diego. Hey, it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, question from San Diego. Yes, I have a question. Is the situation with the P disparity is it still uh, current in the computer field? I mean, uh, are women program as a women software engineer women uh, are they paying be still being paid less than men on general? So, so let me answer the university question for a minute, okay? Because I'm mm -hmm. more familiar with that. There was a terrific study of women in the sciences and in engineering at MIT, two different studies actually, done about five years ago. And what they discovered was that the discrimination has shifted from easily measurable things like salary, right? But, for example, women have dramatically less lab space in MIT than men, women faculty. And they enter with the same lab space 
and eight years later, women have the lab space they started with, and men have now I forget what, but something like two and a half times as much on the average, right? So, uh, so the conclusion of this study, and Chuck Best, then the president of MIT, reacted in a, a very significant way uh, towards this. But the, the conclusion of the study was that the there, there was not discrimination by typical measures, uh, proportion hired, entry-level salary, entry-level lab space, but you got chipped away at as your career progressed. Related to that as well, there's been documented that among particularly uh, new female faculty is that they end up being expected almost to do more work, not in terms of research production, but in terms of involvement in various uh, uh, service efforts. Yeah, so yeah, sure. women are particularly su suggested to be on various committees. It's you know one of the interesting challenges having is if you decide to have a diversity community, uh, I mean diversity uh, committee, you're going to look for y your minority populations and expect them to be on there. Now, not only are they just dealing with you know you know the issues of being you know minority, now they actually have to do extra work. I, uh, ha I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, just to look at it from the other perspective, and I don't know if you have any numbers or anything. Is it possible that now it is easier for that 15% of women to find a job just because companies have to fill some kind of quota to say that they are politically correct? Depends on where you are. If you're in the state of Washington, that's so legal to do, thanks to, what was that initiative? Uh, 200. Yeah, Initiative 200 uh, pretty much banned hiring like that. And um, that's actually a really uh, messy issue to get into because there are definitely... So, for example, the National Science Foundation's Graduate Fellowship Program has sort of a special little addendum to it for uh, uh, female graduate students who apply. And pretty much you can, when you fill it out, you can ask if you want to be... Uh, Considered for that, and just um, you know, so among the graduate student women uh, here, we had a lunch uh, last month. We actually were discussing this, and there can be some mixed feelings on you know special target uh, programs like this, where you might feel that you're you know a good student, but were you only receiving the scholarship, or were you only hired because uh, you happened to fill a quota, or you just happened to be a woman? It's you know it's interesting. It's you know the perceptions on from the person themselves, also from their peers. So another example is many universities have tried to diversify their faculty by allocating, say, in engineering. Here's a faculty slot for the engineering department that comes up with the best woman, right? So now you wind up getting an extraordinary person, but that person comes in stigmatized, and it stigmatizes them in their own eyes, perhaps not just in the eyes of other people. Now, I think it, it's worth mentioning the, the Larry Summers debacle for a second, unless it's on your slide. And I actually didn't mention that. I forgot about yeah, it. So one of the things that Summers went down for as president of Harvard... Uh, so people who aren't aware of this, Larry Summers uh, was, a, was the president of Harvard, and they had, there was a conference in Boston at the time on uh, uh, encouraging women in the sciences. Uh, Larry Summers uh, was asked to give a talk, and he pretty much brought up saying, like, well, you know, he, he, Here's didn't what he said. He said there are three plausible reasons for the underrepresentation of women in the sciences. Uh, one is uh, essentially uh, biological ability differences. Uh, a second was uh, discrimination, 
and a third was uh, women are more likely to seek a work-life balance than men. And uh, what he said was that he thought discrimination was the, essentially he ranked those, he ranked discrimination as the least, most likely the least significant in his opinion, and uh, ability differences as the most significant. And he gave actual data by analyzing how one of his uh, young daughters played with uh, trucks that uh, he gave her. So, so the, the key point here is that he displayed a complete lack of knowledge of what is a very significant research literature on mm -hmm. the way academia treats women, right? And um, that's something that ought to be the core competency uh, of anybody running a university. You know, you at least ought, even if you're a bad guy, you ought to understand what the facts are. Um, and you know, it's just anybody in a university knows that there are various forms of discrimination. Some of it overt, and some of it, uh, some of it subtle. And that's not to say that there are not potentially gender-linked ability differences. Yeah. Just to say that it's, it's, it's yeah. inconceivable so, to anyone who's been engaged in this that that's the high order bit. Yeah. So, just as a little background here, I do a, my work is largely grounded in educational psychology. There are gender differences in abilities. The actual amount of standard deviation is huge. So picking out one individual from population and saying they're going to be like all women or all men is very flawed. And moreover, these are often very, very low level abilities and that necessarily won't reflect at all on a higher level uh, task. So yeah, yeah, you might not be the greatest at spatial manipulation, but if the high-level task can has some spatial manipulation aspect, but you can compensate for it in other ways, you really can't make a judgment on those sort of abilities there. So I want to kind of just get to a few final points real quick, unless there are questions. Yeah, we should roll. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there was a lot of factors for success for these women. They had opportunity. They had encouragement. They actually saw also an application of their work. Even the people working on ENIAC, saw that this was something helping the war effort. You know, the, it wasn't just something that was just sitting out there. There's been a lot of recent work saying that you can make huge differences in introductory programming classes by actually making the assignments relevant or you know, have an application instead of some arbitrary abstract uh, you know, notion. And also, you know, these women were interested in what they did. There are definitely hurdles to overcome if we're going to be looking at uh, changing uh, the, the gender diversity in computer science. One, we have to fight the negative stereotypes of computer science. Actually, that's something that affects all of us, men and women. There's also a lack of support and biases against uh, family planning, where it's something that women, through partially biological reasons, but also just tradition has been, uh, you know, placed, all that has been placed a lot on women, and that affects things like tenure, uh, there's also been some lack of encouragement, and I'll admit, fortunately, there's still some misogynism out there. Um, there are plenty of examples of undergrad uh, women, graduate women, who have been pretty much uh, told that they don't belong, or have been relegated as their work is lower than their male peers. So, so here's an, an example of some of the earlier stuff that I just want to mention in the U University of Washington context, which is, um, the fact is that women bear more than 50% of the childcare responsibility, typically. The University of Washington, with 3,500 faculty and 12,000 graduate students and something like 20,000 staff members, 
has 50 slots of daycare available. <laughs> 50 slots of daycare for this entire campus, yeah. right? Uh, and the history of daycare is interesting. If anyone's interested, email me. I'll tell you about the efforts in uh, during World War II of federally, federally sponsored daycare. It was absolutely amazing. And then they ended it because women had to go back to the home. So this is so bad that to hire a, a new, we hired a woman faculty member this year from Carnegie Mellon who's been there about four years, and she has year-old twins. And because UW couldn't provide daycare, and because all the daycare in the area uh, is booked out for three years in advance, mm -hmm. what we had to do was to give her essentially a special salary supplement that allowed her to hire mm -hmm. uh, an individual to mm -hmm. care for her kids, because the university had no provision for this at all. Yeah. Last two slides. Sorry. This won't go fast. First of all, point: diversity is not just about women. Race, ethnicity, even personal experiences, these all matter. And also to diversity, you know, gender gaps exist in other fields, and sometimes it's actually where men are the minority. Nursing is actually viewed as being really big, uh, having being very male, uh, uh, male uh, women, well, biased towards men not being involved. Diversity is also a pipeline issue. We need to think about it not only at, you know, the graduate level, the faculty hiring level. We need, we need to focus on high school, elementary school, and the big reason is this. You know, I can go into a high school and tell all this great work about Radia Perlman, Thelma Estrin, but the reaction is, yeah, they were amazing, but can I do that? The idea of the pipeline is, is that you can take undergraduate women who are doing computer science, have them talk to people in high school, and it's more achievable. It's like, oh, she's only a few years older than me. I can do that work. Also, a lot of this are just social issues that need to be addressed, and you know, society takes a long time to change. But one of the key things is, though, this is not something that's sh like addressing the the lack of women in computer science is just not a problem for women. I'm going to turn to a final quote from Radia Perlman to end this. Recently, a recruiter for a company sent me email saying, "We are particularly interested in you as a female thought leader." I didn't reply because I wasn't interested in the job. But I fantasized, replying, thank you for your interest. Although my credentials as a thought leader are impeccable, I must warn you that I'm not qualified as a female. I can't walk in heels, I have no clothing sense, and I'm not particularly decorative. What aspects of being female are important for this position? I think that says it all. It's, uh, you know, just standing thoughts are, I said, you know, there have been women in computing, just as much as there have been many other different types of people, we should recognize them. Should all have a happy Thanksgiving. You know, do if you have any questions, definitely discuss it on the wiki. Uh, since I'm not traveling out to Kentucky, I'll be needing things to do for the holiday. <laughs> Great, thanks.